Hello, listeners. If you are enjoying this podcast without commercial interruption and are financially able, please consider supporting our effort. To contribute, go to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and click on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? When that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Listen, uh... Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode number 380 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 17, the finale. After a couple of days of orbital science, it was finally time for the crew of Apollo 17 to go home. The wake-up music in the morning was from the doors. Light my fire. It was a great choice, and the amazing thing about it was that Ron slept right through it, despite the fact that he was on watch and was wearing the earpiece. Gene suggested that Houston play the song again, but before that could be done, Ron woke up, sounding very, very groggy. Just for his benefit, Houston went ahead with the replay. Wake up came just a few minutes before loss of signal, and by the time the crew re-emerged, they were eating breakfast. Capcom, Bob Overmeyer, read up a summary of the day's news. Former President Harry S. Truman, who had been in the crew's thoughts throughout the mission, was still in serious condition. He died the day after Christmas. When it was the crew's turn to talk, they reported that they had all slept well once they got to sleep and got about five hours of sleep apiece. The trans-Earth injection burn was done over the far side about eight hours after wake-up. During their final hours in lunar orbit, all three of the astronauts passed along miscellaneous geology observations, but the burn was the main event, and when they emerged from behind the moon for the last time, Gene was able to report a nearly perfect one-half G burn. America has found some fair winds and following seas, he said, and we're on our way home. Indeed, once Houston got enough tracking data, they found that the velocity error was so small that the mid-course correction would only have to be 0.3 feet per second and there was talk of deleting the burn entirely. After the burn, America climbed rapidly away from the moon, and indeed, the increased altitude meant that acquisition of signal came more than 13 minutes early than it would 
without the burn. The climb out from the moon also gave the crew some new perspective, and they shared the view with Houston, especially a spectacular TV tour of the crater Tiakovsky. By the time the landing site came into view, they were 2,000 miles out and they were beginning to lose detail. Jack said that he could see the landslide area at the base of the South Massif, but soon even he had to give up. Before long, they settled into the routine of the flight home, and as Jack told Houston, there really was not much to do. Ron was experiencing some gastric distress, and for the first time in the mission, Houston set up a private comm channel so that he could talk to the doctors without the world listening in. The last five hours of the day passed slowly. The highlight of the following day was to be Ron's EVA, and this time, although it was Gene who responded to Houston, there was no grogginess in Ron's voice when he joined the conversation. The wake-up music was Jerry Vale's Home for the Holidays. And to underline the message, Houston reported to the crew that they had just passed the point where the pull of Earth became dominant over the moons. Gene, of course, wanted to know how fast they were going at the crossover, and Houston came back with a figure of 3,851 feet per second, roughly a very modest one kilometer per second. While Gene's attention was focused on their progress, the status of the spacecraft and the happy reminder that this day was the 69th anniversary of the Wright brothers' first flight, Jack was still thinking about the moon. He called down to Houston and asked Capcom, Bob Overmeyer, if anyone was still in the back room. There wasn't, so Overmeyer made a note on Gene's thoughts to pass on later. After thinking it over some more, Gene now believed that Van Serg Breccia's might be the old, indurated regolith over the subfloor. When he and Gene had stopped at Van Serg toward the end of the third EVA, they had been surprised and puzzled that this fairly sizable impact out in the middle of the valley was not the basaltic rock that they had come to expect, but rather some very fragile rocks that looked to be breccias, defined as rocks made up of fragments of other rocks fused together by an impact. On the drive back to the limb, Jack had speculated that Van Serg had by chance hit a window in the basalt and had dug up underlying breccias, but he remembers not being very happy with that hypothesis because Van Serg is only a few tens of meters deep. The window hypothesis would require that elsewhere in the valley where they did see basaltic rock, the basaltic layer not be very thick. Consequentially, Jack's thinking during the night may have been influenced by the report from Fullerton that the traverse gravimeter was indicating that the basaltic valley field was three or four kilometers thick, and therefore the Van Serg breccias had to be made 
from something that was lying on top of the basalt at that location. Perhaps they were actually clods of soil which had been highly compressed, turned into a fragile instant rock in the impact. That was an alternative, Jack thought, that in the heat of battle did not occur to him at the time. It should have, and it may have occurred to some of the scientists in the back room. Now Jack believed that this was a better theory than the window to the subfloor he had postulated before. To Jack it made sense from a lot of point of views. The size of the crater, the fact that they should have expected to see something but had not up to that time, and the breccias could very easily have been soil breccias, and just getting coarser as they got closer to the top of the subfloor, which is that Jean and Jack were looking at down in the bottom of the crater. And indeed, when the Van Serg breccias were examined back in Houston, they proved to be soil breccias. Larger, more competent versions of the instant rock than Jean and Jack saw at the rims of the small craters at several places in the valley. Once again, the value of having a geologist on this mission was proven. Moving on from moon geology, about five hours after wake-up, the crew began preparation for Ron's EVA. They put all the miscellaneous trash they had accumulated since releasing Challenger and removed the center couch so that they would have room for Ron to get out and for Jack to stand in the hatch and take pictures. The jettison bag would drift off only slowly as they continued their journey, and once it hit the top of the atmosphere, it would quickly burn up. Because they did not have a lot of elbow room and as well were not in any great hurry, preparations for the EVA took about two and a half hours, but eventually they were all suited and had done pressure integrity checks and were ready to open the hatch. As they were depressurizing the cabin, Jean, who was of course a veteran of a zero-g EVA on Gemini 9, advised Ron to be sure that once he had made his way back to the sim bay, he got his feet firmly planted in the footholds before he did anything else. Recall, during Jean's spacewalk on Gemini 9, which was only the third that had ever been done, and the first in which an astronaut attempted to do real work outside the spacecraft, Jean was hindered by a lack of hand and footholds. When he tried to use a wrench to turn a bolt, it was he who tended to turn, and coupled with the inadequate cooling capability of the Gemini suit, he had a very frustrating and tiring time of it. For later Gemini EVAs, hand holds and footholds were added to the outside of the spacecraft, and back at the Apollo 17 sim bay, there was a pair of good footholds for Ron to use. Okay, babe, 
said Jean as they prepared to depressurize. When you get out there, just take it nice and slow and easy. You've got all day long. Yes, that's right, said Ron. It's not like the vomit comet airplane, which gave you about a half minute of zero G at a time. Feel yourself around, said Jean, and it's nice and easy to get around. Just do not let your body start moving too fast out there. Okay, side hatch dump valve is coming open, slowly. Nice day for an EVA, Ron, said Jack as they got down toward zero pressure. Go out and have a good time. Ron got his visor down. He was wearing Jean's lunar visor assembly, the one with the big red stripe and the gold visor, which made it hard for him to see while he was still in the cabin. But, from their own recent experience, Gene and Jack assured him that he would need the protection once he got into full sun. When Ron was ready, they opened the hatch. A felt-tip pin drifted out, but no scissors. And then Ron followed. Here's how it sounded. Ron's first job was to mount a pole on the side of the spacecraft and then mount the TV camera on the pole. Some of the paint on the side of the spacecraft was blistered, he noticed, but otherwise it all looked to be in great shape. Gradually, he made his way back to the sim bay, laughing and humming as he went. At first, he had a little trouble forcing his feet into the restraints, but eventually he was securely in place, and just to show everybody that he was, he let go with each hand. Ron was having a great time, saying, Hey, this is great, and laughing as he always did. Talk about being a spaceman. This is it. Okay, back to work. Ron's next job was to hook a tether on the Lunar Sounder data cassette so that when he pulled the cassette out, it would not float away if he accidentally lost his grip. Once the tether was in place, he pulled on the cassette, saying, Okay, let's try the old cassette. We will push down on it until the locking mechanism goes past center. Aha! He radioed. I think that was more than two pounds of force to come out, but it came out. A moment later, after Ron had gotten out of the foot restraints so that he could bring the cassette back to Jack at the hatch, he caught his suit pocket on the spacecraft, and when it broke loose, 
the sudden force threw his feet up into the air. He was able to control himself with his hands, but he noticed that as he used his wrists to rotate his feet back down toward the spacecraft, it was hard to stop them again and avoid having them bounce right back out. After a successful handoff to Jack, Ron made his way aft again to get the pan camera film cassette. Once he had it out and tethered, he discovered that the easiest thing to do was to let the cassette float on the tether so that he could get a good grip with both hands while he got his feet out of the restraints, and the cassette came right along with him back to the hatch. Ron was having a ball, and at one point when he was taking a brief rest and looked toward the hatch and noticed the TV camera, he said hi to his mother and to his wife and their two boys. And then, all too soon, it was time to end the EVA. It took a minute for Jack to get out of the way so that they could get Ron and his umbilicals back into the spacecraft. As he got the TV camera down off the pole, he gave Houston a look at the moon, but the ground was eager for him to get back in. Once he had handed the TV in, he stuck his own feet down in through the hatch and, with Gene and Jack to guide him, got in without any difficulty. Here's how Ron remembered the experience. We had left the moon, and then the next day, uh, I had the opportunity to go outside the spacecraft to retrieve some film cassettes that were out there. And here we are, here we are 180,000 miles from the Earth. We're moving along at 10,000 miles an hour. And then we've got to put on those dirty old spacesuits uh, and get ready to go outside. You, you know, you, in those days, you'd open the hatch and, you know, everybody's out in the vacuum. So everybody's got to put on their spacesuits, uh, dirty old things, and get the zippers all lined up again. And then you have a test in there, and you turn a little valve, and, and it pumps you up again and makes you like a beetle uh, inside the spacesuit as it overpressurizes it to check out the pressure. And then everything looks good, so then you let the pressure back down again, and then you get ready to open and really go outside this time. And behind my head over here is a, is a valve, and you open that valve and just barely crack the valve and sucks all the air uh, out of the spacecraft and the little space suits they pop up you know blow up again and and, and then the, you still have the hatch there so you check everything for a little while and then you reach over and you and the hatch goes open now comes the time you're going outside and i'll tell you if you ever want to be a spaceman that's the time when you're out there in that vacuum of space, and the only thing between you and that and that vacuum is if you, is your spacesuit, and you can maneuver in those days just by hanging on to the side of the spacecraft and going hand over hand, never letting go of both hands at the same time. I'll tell you, <laughs> you know. But at least you were maneuvering around there, and you go down and pick up the film cassettes and, and come back in. And I did that three times. And the third time, uh, you finally have a time to kind of relax a little bit. Hey, our mission is pretty well completed. I've got the third cassette attached to my arm, and we're coming back in. And, and uh, I kind of relax a little bit, and you kind of look around. You know, what, is, what does it look like up there? What can you see? And, and, and off over to my left, there was a moon. And it was a full moon. looked about the same size as it does from down here. And then over to my right, since we were between the Earth and the moon, was a crescent Earth. And, and the height of that crescent is four times as height 
as high as the diameter of the moon. And then 30 degrees or so off in that black infinity of space was a disk, an emphasized disk of a sun. You can't tell the sun is shining unless it reflects off of or hits a body up there. You know, it hits the moon or that crescent piece of the earth or in that one little area down on my spacecraft where I was, you know, going hand over hand back and forth down there. And when I was coming back in the, uh, the third time, as I mentioned, I finally looked down, and would you believe, right there where that sun was shining on the spacecraft, painted down there below the hatch, was an American flag. And below that flag, it said, again painted in there, United States of America. I could not help but pause and reflect for a moment that your nation, my nation, through our endeavors and accomplishments in space during that period of time, created an unprecedented prestige in the eyes of the rest of the world. You know, I'm proud to be a part of that program, but I am even more proud to be an American. And that brings us to the final significant event of the Apollo 17 mission. Splashdown. Three hours before splashdown, Gene gave America a nudge of 2.1 feet per second to fine-tune its trajectory. Considering how far and how long they had traveled since the trans-Earth injection burn, this minuscule burn was a testament to the men and women who had designed, built, and flown the Apollo spacecraft. The flight of Apollo 17 is coming to an end, and with it, man's exploration of the moon for the immediate future at any rate. Apollo 17, an absolutely perfect flight so far, except for that two-hour and 40-minute delay in getting off from Cape Kennedy uh, a week ago last Wednesday. But it has been perfect since then, and it's perfect right now in the re-entry phase, or the pre-re-entry phase. Just a moment ago, uh, the command module uh, separated from the service module, and now uh, Cernan and uh, Schmidt and uh, uh, Evans are on their way home in just their command module. Let's listen now from downrange to the Ticonderoga and David Snell. The excitement on the flight deck of the Ticonderoga is, of course, different than what is being felt by the frogmen right now. But it, too, is growing. Sailors and Marines already straining to get the first glimpse of the returning space travelers. Above deck, 12-year-old Kevin Steen, a guest of Admiral J.L. Butts, has the perfect vantage point. Kevin is the Arizona boy, dying of cancer, whose interest in Apollo is credited with giving him so strong a will to live he has so far overcome his deadly body chemistry. Kevin is ready for splashdown, and so are we all. David Snell on board the Ticonderoga. It's 17 minutes to splashdown now, and we've been listening to the terse comments from space the astronauts are making as they're checking out the last bit of equipment before they, they hit the top of the atmosphere. That will be at 75 miles up in about 16 and a half minutes. It takes them 13 minutes and 17 seconds, if all goes well, to travel that last 400,000 feet. The communications blackout will last for three minutes and 19 seconds. 
That drogue chute that we've all seen open so many times on Apollo will come out at 23,000 feet about seven minutes after they enter. And Apollo Control is telling us now about the aircraft that are going out, all part of the recovery forces. We've just seen some of those described from the Ticonderoga. So that all is well, all is on schedule, and we'll be back with more Apollo 17 coverage after this. And that, again, the deck of the carrier Ticonderoga and the men of the carrier there um, with welcoming signs that we can read. That's long distance away for satellite picture to be coming into your living room. And in about 40 seconds, over the equator, 1,100 miles to the northwest of this aircraft carrier, 75 miles up in the sky, the spacecraft will touch the Earth's atmosphere and we will begin, at that point, the process called Earth Interface. Three and a half foot diameter ring sail parachutes will be pulled out by pilot parachutes, small pilot parachutes, at an altitude of 10,500 feet. Spacecraft will splash down at approximately 22 miles per hour with uh, three fully inflated parachutes. Meanwhile, the crew is uh, using the entry monitor system to steer for the desired aiming point, which is some 1,044 miles downrange from the actual entry point into the atmosphere. The entry, entry monitor system, or EMS as it's referred to, gives a display to the crew which gives them the roll angle to steer to the desired track downrange to uh, hit the aiming point. Now the position of the recovery ship Ticonderoga may or may not be near the aiming point. Uh, the accuracy of the landing is dependent on the distance from the aiming point, not from where the ship is at the time. It's squarely on the Navy again, Wally. <laughs> My typical complaint. Should yeah. be coming out of blackout, as mentioned earlier, at uh, 3 minutes 37 seconds into entry. This is the voice of Terry White, the voice of Less than a minute away. Anyway. And hopefully we will have confirmation from the crew on drogue deployment and main parachute deployment, assuming that communications through the Apollo range instrumented aircraft called Araya is good. Communications were switched to that aircraft a moment ago as the spacecraft gets closer the to the course it needs a relay Tyco, for that Ticonderoga prime recovery ship has reported that they have radar contact with the spacecraft. That's good. We should be getting that uh, out of blackout Probably here in the second track of the spacecraft with the ship's radar. Capsule communicator you'll be hearing time to time is Robert Overmeyer. We've re-entered uh, blackout. Terry White uh, reappeared from blackout, I should say. We were waiting for a call from the space from the uh, Capcom. Terry White, uh, voice of mission control, is in Houston. He has his fingertips, all of the communication channels coming into Houston, of course, uh, being relayed from the range aircraft. 
and from the Ticonderoga. You should be hearing uh, from the spacecraft itself very shortly now. Okay, we're going to be reversing. Okay. That sounds like the crazy. Okay, we're going to be reversing. 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 Okay, we're going to be Thank you, Sigourse Leo Prep, Chief Engineer for North American Rockwell that builds this spacecraft. We've sailed off about three quarters of their velocity. That's still 5,000 miles an hour. Rogue deployment in two minutes, Mark. Good. Okay, about 3.1 days. We're about 4,500 feet a second. Okay, you're on the scroll, 22 miles, 4,000 feet a second. Zero plus 88 degrees, okay, that's good. Okay, okay. okay. side of the ground track to the other and he mentioned that he rolled over the top the lift vector rolled over the top to keep the cross range error out see it yet, but we're told they can see it from the ship. 
since Apollo 7. They've been coming very, very close indeed, within about 3.2 miles, and the greater accuracy, the NASA people say, is because of improved computer guidance systems that have evolved in this program. For Eugene Zinnin, this is re-entry number three. He's had three very good ones, too, on Gemini 9, the three-day... Exactly, very good ones. at this point that Ron Evans, uh, the spacecraft commander, is uh, going to be coming back to his old ship, the Ticonderoga. He was on the Ticonderoga, flying missions in Vietnam, the only one of the uh, moon-flying astronauts who was a Vietnam veteran. He was flying those missions off the Ticonderoga when he got word that he was to enter the astronaut program. He went ahead and finished up his missions. Uh, came home to enter the astronaut program. That's a beautiful picture, isn't it? That is great. Those shoots are very stable. Normally they've been moving around a little bit, but these look extremely stable. It's a feeling we're above that. I think that's coming from helicopter. Yeah, that may be. It's not a study. Is that, uh, no, it's not a study, and it looks like we're above it. Yeah. One minute mark. Well, apparently we do have a helicopter cam. I didn't hear him call me Paul. You got a little Navy talk here while you're surrounded by him. We've got about one minute left here of the parachute ride. A little less than that before splashdown now. 
see the 21 degree angle of dangle we have on the command module that's so the toe goes into the water first to help cushion the shock it doesn't hit flat oh very good leo that's a good thing i didn't know i didn't know you had a dangle angle
So now they're busy uh, doing the final cleanup, getting ready to open those hatch uh, covers after the flotation gear is, uh, has been put around the spacecraft by the divers. And CBS News coverage of the return home of Apollo 17 will continue in a moment. And here is how Ron Evans remembered Splashdown. And, you know, here we are 250,000 miles away from the Earth, and, and the Earth looks like a little ball up there, uh, slightly larger than the moon does from down here. But uh, you'd think, you know, you'd aim right for the middle of it, you know, make sure you're going to hit it until coming back. But you really don't do that. What you do, you kind of visualize this round ball, and you have to come in exactly six degrees down from what we call the, the tangent or the local horizontal at that particular point where you're going to hit the Earth's atmosphere at 300,000 feet above the Earth. Now, if you come in, we'll say, seven degrees down, that means you're coming in too steep. You're, you're still skimming along now. You're speeded up at 25,000 miles an hour again. You're going to hit the friction of that Earth's atmosphere. And the rate of that heating up of the spacecraft is too much, and it tends to burn the spacecraft up. So you don't want to do that. Or if you come in now instead of six degrees, you come in down just five degrees down. That means you're going to come on in, you're going to hit the Earth's atmosphere, it's going to slow you down a little bit, a little bit, a little bit, but not enough to capture you. And it goes swing off into space. Maybe to come back, maybe not. But anyway. So you come in exactly six degrees down, and, and, and you come in six degrees down, and then when you get down to 300,000 feet above the Earth, that's when you start feeling the friction of the atmosphere, and I have a little G-meter inside the spacecraft and it reads 0.05 Gs, 500ths of a G. And that's the signal, hey Gene, Jack, hang on, something's gonna happen. And does it ever, very, very rapidly, from 500ths of a G, in just 35 seconds time, you've got seven Gs pushing you back down into the seat on the spacecraft, you know, it starts pushing you back down in there, and then the spacecraft, uh, due to this aerodynamic friction and whatever, it starts to skip back out into space. So before it goes from seven Gs back up to four Gs, you gotta turn it upside down, make it dig back into the Earth's atmosphere, so it'll come on down, come on down, come on down, and then you have four Gs, and then down to three Gs, and then down to two Gs, and then one G, and then it starts to tumble and flop around, and then you get down to 25,000 feet, and boom, adult parachutes come out. Got us going in the right direction. No, we're coming down back in first. <laughs> you know? So we're going in the right direction. We get down to 10,000 feet, and then boom! Three big mortars fire, and, and three uh, supposed to be parachutes come out through these uh, mortars out through the top of the spacecraft. And, and when that happens, you look up, and there's nothing but strings. You know, look up, and, and there's still nothing but strings. And you look up again, and there's nothing but strings up there. You know, and then pretty soon you say, unfold, unfold, you know, you know do something. You know, and then first, ah, here it comes. So we've got three parachutes, you know, and, and everything looks good. The only thing we've got left to do now is to hit the water. So as we, I had an altimeter in the spacecraft, and as you get close to the water, I started calling off uh, the altitudes. And then we got down to 500 feet. 400 feet, 300 feet, boom, we hit the water. Altimeter was wrong. <laughs> so <laughs> so uh, we, we weren't prepared. Uh, <laughs> Officially, 301 hours, 51 minutes, and 59 seconds after the launch from the Cape, America landed in the Pacific 1.3 miles from its target. Crammed into the spacecraft with the crew were more samples and more frames of exposed film than any other crew had brought back to Earth. 
the Apollo 17 mission was the most productive and trouble-free piloted mission to the moon and represented the culmination of continual advancements in hardware, procedures, training, planning, operations, and scientific experiments. The Apollo 17 mission also demonstrated the practicality of training scientists to become qualified astronauts while retaining their expertise and scientific knowledge. A few months after splashdown, the astronauts made an extraordinary tour across America, 29 states, and 53 cities, where people showered them with appreciation, and then, after being guests at a White House state dinner, the President sent them around the world on a flag-waving tour to places they had never even heard of before. They visited every nation along the equatorial belt throughout Africa and Asia, including Pakistan, India, and the Philippines, where they celebrated July 4th on the balcony of Malakang Palace, shooting off firecrackers with President Marcos. As an interesting side note, within two years of their trip, almost every president and dictator who hosted the Apollo 17 crew was either assassinated, in exile, or headed that way. Historians could look back and see the white spire of Apollo 17 as a milepost marking when things started to get better. Within a few years, the Vietnam War ended, the prisoners came home, and one of the most divisive periods in American history was over. Centuries may pass before we understand the true significance of Apollo, that lunar exploration was not just a monument to technology, but more of a Rosetta Stone, a key to unlock dreams. Apollo's legacy is that humans are no longer shackled to the earth. Apollo opened the door to tomorrow and the program's trips to another celestial body will rank as the ultimate triumph of the 20th century. From a certain point of view, it seems Apollo came before its time, as if President Kennedy reached far into the 21st century, took a decade of time, and slid it neatly into the 1960s and 70s. Logic dictates that after Mercury and Gemini, we should have proceeded to build a shuttle, then an orbiting space station, and only then attempt a moon landing. As it was, Apollo accomplished the impossible. Then the space program started over again. It was as if the country chose to never again cross the Mississippi River after Lewis and Clark discovered the Northwest Passage. Cernan wrote in his book that he often reflected upon that cold winter day when he stood by Roger Chaffee's grave in Arlington, wondering if the final notes of taps were also the death knell of the U.S. space program. Now, having been to the moon, it's clear that we not only survived the Apollo 1 fire, but succeeded beyond anything we could have imagined. And the question now has become, why didn't we go on? The United States is impatient and fickle 
about even the most astounding achievements. After we landed on the moon six times, perhaps we needed to take some time to figure out what we had learned before taking the next step in space. And Skylab and the shuttle were worthwhile places to spend our space dollars in the interim. Then, as the years passed, the aggressive spirit gave way to caution, to not even wanting to attempt such ventures unless success could be guaranteed. The disasters of the space shuttles Challenger and Columbia, seen on television by millions, reinforced that seeming determination to make space travel a no-risk business, which it cannot be. Only now, over 50 years later, do we seek to return humankind to the moon, and the success of that goal is largely based on the whims of politicians. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina on the shores of the mighty Yadkin River. This is Michael Anish, your host, and I want to say thanks for listening to episode number 380 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Apollo 17, The Finale. Hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure to bring it to you. Our next episode should appear by January 27th. And in just three episodes... We will have a special episode (laughs) celebrating nine years of the Space Rocket History Podcast. That should occur on February 24th, episode number 383. You don't want to miss that one, and I'm looking forward to it. Did I say episode too many times in that paragraph? I think I did. (laughs) If you're looking for old episodes... (laughs) Of the podcast, the first 204 are available on the Archive podcast. Search for Space Rocket History Archive. It should be available on most podcatchers. And by the way, if you began the Emoji Mover maneuver last year in 2021, now's an excellent time to complete it. Had a few afterthoughts. Sorry if you heard strange noises or music playing during the podcast. We are still under construction here. Well, sadly, the Apollo moon landings are over, and I must admit, I am a little uh, brokenhearted about that one. I am an Apollo man through and through. It does give me a sense of accomplishment that I got through all of them, and it only took nine years. <laughs> But I do have a feeling of loss as well. But we will continue on. The next episode will be where we left off in 1971. Also, I look forward, hopefully, to getting to Skylab if I can. want to apologize for non-geologist listeners. Believe it or not, we have some geologist listeners. I want to apologize for non-geologist listeners, though, because that's, there was a section of that episode 
where the geology got pretty technical. I hope that wasn't too much for you. On that last splashdown clip, how did you like the mix of NBC and CBS News? I thought that turned out pretty good. And, <laughs> and I just couldn't leave Cronkite out of the final Apollo. It was kind of funny to me how the newscasters would marvel that they could have a live TV transmission of the splashdown all the way in the middle of the Pacific when they just had live TV from the moon. What, what am I missing here? The moon was a lot further away. Anyway, <laughs> for those interested in the uh, farm progress, we have a new leak in the 12-foot-long trench in the basement floor where it was repaired when the concrete floor contractor broke the plumbing drainage pipe. So that issue continues to haunt us. We had a good bit of rain the other weekend. Some water actually just came up from the floor. I showed the contractor. Now, of course, he wasn't too concerned about it. But I, I kind of am. The uh, gas fireplace ceramic is still broken and no work has been done on it yet. The window that was broken by the sheetrock delivery people remains unrepaired or replaced. The sheetrock, for the most part, is installed and sanded. Now, when they installed part of it, we noticed a low spot in the ceiling in the kitchen where the contractor used a broken truss to nail the sheetrock to. Now, he did repair the truss, but apparently it was a little bit lower than the other trusses. So, I told him about that truss in, in the first place before we even put the sheetrock up, but he, he assured me that would not be a problem. Well, it was. There was a dip in the sheetrock. The uh, contractor wound up going back to the factory to get another official solution to fix the truss once again, and he implemented the repair. Now, finally and at last, the ceiling is flat like it's supposed to be. So they, But they still now have to finish up the sheetrock over that spot where it was low. So that's the only sheetrock, I think, that has to be done is to uh, put the mud and do the sanding of that sheetrock on the ceiling, and that should be completed. And it looks a whole lot more like a house inside, I can tell you that. The exterior vinyl siding was installed everywhere except where the broken window is. And they didn't do that because they're going to have to take out the old window and replace it with a new window. So they left that part uninstalled which was the thing to do, but of course it's another delay. They could have had that broken window installed before, but it's not here, not ordered, not here. So, you know how I feel about that. The kitchen and bathroom cabinets have been installed, except for the granite countertops, which it looks, that really helps out the looks inside, I'm telling you. It's looking a lot better. They finally installed all but one 
of the metal floor supports in the basement, the poles in the basement that support the floor. These uh, replace the temporary supports that the contractor put up, the wooden ones. I don't know why they didn't install one of them. That one is, uh, I just don't know why they left one of them uninstalled. The appliances have been delivered as well as the interior doors and trim. Now they are all sitting in the garage and hopefully they'll get to work on those soon. So we did get a fair amount of work done this past three weeks and the outside of the house looks so much better. I, I tell you what, we will uh, take a picture and put it on Patreon and you can uh, see it. Just go to patreon.com slash space rocket history and it's free to view for everyone. Uh, we don't have a completion date yet on the house, but we're hoping it's sometime in February. I don't know if we can make the end of February now or not. We're hoping that we can. Over the last three weeks, we had several contributions and increases on Patreon. We also selected our new longevity emoji. We selected the space communication dish for nine consecutive years of donation, everyone that continued on Patreon for 2022 will also be promoted to the next longevity emoji. It will be placed next to their name on the donor's page. Now, we are still working on that, so I will let you know when we have it all done, and you can check for your name and make sure you have the correct emoji. Now, I want to recognize and thank the final 2021 donors. Matthew F. sent in another donation and is at the Artemis level. Zbigniew M. sent in another donation and increased his pledge on Patreon. He is now at the Starship level. Stephen L. from Michigan donated at the Voyager level and earned a shooting star emoji. Christopher B. from Pennsylvania sent in another donation and moved to the Orion level. Rick M. from Vermont donated at the Orion level. Pete P. from Georgia sent in another donation and moved to the shuttle level. Sean K. from Florida donated at the shuttle level. Peter C. from the UK donated at the Apollo level and earned a shooting star emoji. Tave F. from North Carolina donated at the Apollo level. James S. from California sent in another donation and moved to the Apollo level. Chris H. from Georgia donated at the Apollo level and earned a shooting star emoji. Robin P. from Switzerland donated at the Apollo level and earned a moon emoji. Sven B. from Germany donated at the Mercury level. Tobias L. from Germany donated at the Mercury level and earned a shooting star emoji. Rob C. from Australia donated at the Mercury level and earned a space communications dish emoji. Mike R. from Berkeley, California donated for his son, Hank, at the Mercury level with rocket emoji. Todd M. from Orlando, Florida donated at the Mercury level and earned a moon emoji. Peter M. from California donated at the Vostok level and earned a shooting star emoji. Tom C. increased his pledge on Patreon to the shuttle level. Christoph M. pledged on Patreon at the Apollo level and earned a Nova emoji. 
Linton Brothers pledged on Patreon at the Gemini level and earned a rocket emoji. Justin D. pledged on Patreon at the Vostok level. Tracy W. from Australia pledged on Patreon at the Vostok level. Now, the 2022 donations. Mark U. from South Dakota donated at the Orion level and earned a galaxy emoji. Gary A. donated at the Apollo level and earned a satellite emoji. Alan M. from Michigan donated at the Mercury level and earned a moon emoji. Dancy S. from Mississippi donated at the Mercury level and earned a moon emoji. Craig H. from Australia donated at the Vostok level and earned an alien emoji. Ray B. donated at the Vostok level. Kevin S. pledged on Patreon at the Apollo level. Mark N. increased his pledge on Patreon to the Soyuz level and earned a rocket emoji. Ference S. from Hungary pledged on Patreon at the Vostok level and earned a shooting star emoji. Our total Patreon donors have reached 253. And that was by the end of 2021 is when they reached it. We are currently at 251 because, of course, we lose some as the month changes. Mainly because of people's credit cards uh, expiring. Uh, so, for January 2022, our current uh, Patreon donors are 251. Our goal this year will be the same as last year. We're going to go for that 300 on the Patreon. See if we can get there. Will we make it? <laughs> I don't know. I haven't got a clue. Our total donors for 2021 reached 444, which I am pleased to say is one more than last year's 443, and a lot more than I thought we were going to get. I am delighted that uh, you contributed to the podcast, and, and we got to 444. Thank you so much for your contributions. Our total donors for 222 have reached 257, and obviously that's because most of those were holdover Patreons from the previous year. Thank you very much for continuing on Patreon with us into 22. We certainly appreciate that. So, if you are enjoying this podcast that has been running almost nine years without commercial interruptions and you can afford it, please consider going to the homepage at spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Now, here's Mrs. SRH with this episode's donor giveaway. Thanks, Mike. Happy New Year, SRH friends. The winner of this episode's drawing will get the choice of a Space Rocket History Magnet, or the Archive Magnet, or two stickers, or two static clings, or two holographic stickers, or a genuine NASA meatball sticker. With the help of Google's random number generator, I selected John Nowak. John Nowak, if you would email us spacerockethistory at gmail.com. Tell us your address and your prize preference. We'll get this out to you. Sincere thanks to all 257 of you who contributed thus far in 2022. My sources for this episode were NASA, NBC News, CBS News, The Last Man on the Moon by Gene Cernan, Grant Stoltz interview with Gene Cernan, Apollo 17 Flight Journal, the Apollo 17 Surface Journal, the Apollo 17 Timeline, the Internet Archive, KNBC, Obsolete 
video, and Wikipedia. And that is all we have for this episode. I will try to have episode 381 posted by January 27th, 2022. Stay healthy, everyone, and so long for now.